Welcome back to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and I have the real pleasure today to talk to the author of Plutocrats United, Campaign Money, the Supreme Court, and the Distortion of American Elections, published this year by Yale University Press. The author is Rick Hassan. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Yeah, it's a a pleasure to have read the book. This is a subject matter that I think everyone will be thinking a lot about and will be thinking more and more as the weeks go on towards the election. Before we get to the book, maybe you could tell us just briefly about yourself and, and where you are now and where you've been in the past. Sure. I'm a professor at the new University of California, Irvine Law School. I also have a courtesy appointment in political science. I, I teach mostly law courses, and my focus is on election law and legislation, issues like campaign finance, redistricting, election administration, uh, and all of the, the Voting Rights Act, and all, all of the legal issues that arise uh, at the intersection of law and politics. Yeah, you, you too have a, have a podcast focused on these issues that maybe we can put up on our website so that people can do some cross-listening across this podcast and, and yours. Let's talk about the really interesting and, and timely book. And before we get to some of the um, arguments that you're making about what could be done in the future, we probably have to track back and, and cover some of the uh, foundational issues. So it seems to me most of these constitutional debates about money and politics have been around these concerns for corruption on the one hand and concerns about the First Amendment on the other. I wonder if you'd explain very briefly to us um, how the corruption or the appearance of corruption argument goes and then about the First Amendment argument. What is the essential reasoning of both of these two core arguments about the relationship between money and politics. Sure. And the reason that the debate has been framed as a fight between the First Amendment and corruption and its appearance uh, is because of the United States Supreme Court. So any time that a uh, law potentially limits what someone can say or how they can associate, uh, that law could be challenged in court as a violation of the United States Constitution's First Amendment, which protects freedom of speech and association, among other things. In the 1970s, in the wake of the Watergate scandal, Congress passed a pretty comprehensive uh, law that limited contributions and spending in elections. It created the Federal Election Commission. It established a public financing system for presidential elections. It did a bunch of things. The law was challenged uh, in court. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and in a case that was decided in 1976 called Buckley versus Vallejo, the Supreme Court said that in, in analyzing limits on money and politics, there has to be a balance. On the one side, you have people's First Amendment rights to speak and associate. On the other side, you have government interests. And so here, the Supreme Court said that preventing corruption uh, and the appearance of corruption would justify some limits on money and politics. And by corruption, the court wasn't exactly clear as to what it meant. It meant something like dollars for political favors, but it was something broader than bribery. The, what, what it's meant has, has been fought over ever since. Uh, appearance of corruption tied to public confidence. If the public believes the politicians are on the take, then that might be a reason to limit money in politics. And so the court balanced these the two things and decided that contribution limits would be constitutional because they would, if you could give a million dollars to a candidate, that could potentially corrupt or create the appearance of corruption. But when spending is truly independent, so for example, you're a millionaire and you spend independently supporting someone for office, that the court said controversially didn't raise the danger of corruption or, 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 or its appearance. Uh, further, 
in this Buckley case, the court said that when we're doing this balancing, while you could look to corruption or the appearance of corruption in, in uh, uh, asserting the government's interest, you could not look to the idea of leveling the playing field or promoting political equality because that interest, the court said, would be wholly foreign to the First Amendment. The First Amendment ca- cannot allow the government to come in and fulfill this role. And this uh, is really the focus of my book, is this court decision 40 years ago that's still playing out today to take political equality off the table. And, and before we get to, to that, there's, there's this 40-year or so period, I guess maybe a little bit shorter than 40 years, between Buckley and Citizens United. Um, what is happening on the court uh, between, in its composition and also in its interpretations? Does it, does it begin to sway towards the, uh, the, the concern about corruption, or does it sway more to the First Amendment argue, argument during this time period before we get to this big punctuation about uh, uh, six years ago? Well, what I would uh, describe the court's uh, trajectory as, it's, it's kind of like a pendulum swinging back and forth. There are periods when the court is skeptical of regulation, votes to strike down limits. There are periods when the court is very deferential, votes to uphold limits. Notably, in 1990, despite what the court said in Buckley, that independent spending could not corrupt uh, a candidate, could not be limited on equality grounds. In 1990, the Supreme Court decided that you could limit what corporations and labor unions spend in elections on what the court called a different type of corruption, which it defined as the distorting and corrupting, the distorting and corrosive effects of immense aggregations of wealth accumulated with the corporate form that have little or no uh, correlation to the public support for uh, the uh, corporation's ideas. That, that's a mouthful, but many of us argued that that was really an equality argument in disguise. What, what made the spending disproportionate was was great uh, corporate power coming from corporate wealth. And so the court upheld spending limits applied to corporations. And, and the law kind of went back and forth. In the early 2000s, the court was upholding just about everything, including the McCain-Feingold law. Then uh, as you say, just before Citizens United, uh, the court turns 180 degrees. Uh, no surprise why it happened. Justice O'Connor, who was the crucial fifth vote to uphold some of these limits on money in politics, retires from the court. She's replaced by Justice Alito, who has a different view on these questions. And the five to four decisions upholding limits become five to four decisions striking them down. And and what 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 changes from from Alito? Uh, from O'Connor to to Alita, how how important is this change in the composition of the co- court compared to sort of changes in the facts related to campaign finance and the change in the the nature of the way money is entering into the political realm? What what is responsible for for the the new rulings in Citizens United and McCutcheon and Speech Now? Is it the composition or is it some new interpretation of the facts? I have to say that on both the liberal and conservative side, my view is that the facts are secondary, that the court has in mind certain ideological predispositions, whether you're a liberal justice and you think money in politics is a big problem, or you're a conservative justice and you think that government regulation in this area is impinging too much on uh, rights of liberty, on rights of free speech. The facts seem to be secondary. So the, the liberals and conservatives look at the same facts as to what's happening on the ground and they draw different conclusions about whether it creates a danger of corruption or the appearance of corruption. So one, one example of this is uh, that uh, in Congress in 2002 passes the McCain-Feingold law, uh, the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, one of the most uh, 
comprehensive pieces of campaign finance legislation since that original 1974 Federal Election Campaign Act that was discussed uh, in the Supreme Court's Buckley case. Congress passed this law. It finds lots of evidence that big soft money contributions, big contributions to the political parties and independent spending create this uh, potential for ingratiation and access, uh, where those who give lots of money to the parties get to have coffee with the president, get to golf with the, the Speaker of the House, and that this ingratiation access creates corruption or the appearance of corruption, which justifies certain limits, uh, for example, on how much you could give to a political party. A few years later in Citizens United, Justice Kennedy, who had dissented in that uh, earlier case that upheld the McConnell case that upheld the McCain-Feingold law, quotes his own dissent in the McConnell case, what now in the majority in Citizens United, he says, ingratiation and access are not corruption. We were wrong in that last case. Uh, it's not corruption and independent spending cannot corrupt and uh, corruption really means something like bribery. So what they're really fighting about are not the facts. They're fighting about how do we define these terms and how much of a risk to our democracy are we willing to put up with in terms of allowing uh, big money in politics in order to protect people's First Amendment rights. So it's their ideological commitments, I think, more than anything else that explains why the court's cases shift in one direction than another. You make this really interesting comment on page 71, that, and uh, that one that I hadn't heard in, framed in this way. So you write, uh, the court's rulings also spawned the rise of super PACs and broke a psychological barrier that had limited how much individuals were willing to spend to contribute to campaigns. So much of your book is about the legal and constitutional barriers. I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about what you meant by the psychological barriers. Sure. So um, back in that Buckley case, the Supreme Court said that if an individual spends independently of a campaign, that individual could uh, spend unlimited sums. So you're a billionaire. You want to spend a few million dollars. You can go ahead and do that. That's been the rule since 1976. But in fact, we've seen very little of that. We've seen very little of billionaires uh, spending in that way directly. On election Now, it might be that billionaires feel like, well, I, I don't want to spend myself because I'm not a, a, an expert. I need to have somebody else do this for me. But I think a big part of it is when advertising, uh, campaign advertising appears, you have to say who who is speaking. And so, you know, if you're the name, your name as the billionaire would be associated with it. Say, All right. Well, I don't want my name so closely associated with this speech. I'd rather give to a group. And uh, that way, rather than it having my name, it'll have the group's name. Turns out that uh, until after Citizens United, uh, the individuals uh, could only give $5,000 to one of these groups. Now, we've had people break that rule in the past, including George Soros in the 2004 elections, gave $23 million to a group. He claimed the group wasn't really a political committee, and so he was allowed to do that. There was a whole fight over this question. But what happened after Citizens United is we get this case called Speech Now that's decided by a lower court that says that $5,000 limit is unconstitutional if, as Citizens United uh, says, independent spending cannot corrupt or create the appearance of corruption, then contributions to fund independent spending cannot corrupt or create the appearance of corruption. And after that, what you end up seeing is multi, multi millions of dollars coming from very wealthy individuals going into these super PACs. This is what I mean by the psychological barrier being broken. There's no longer a concern among these very wealthy individuals about them spending their money in this way. And because they get to insulate it uh, or launder it or, or pass it through a super PAC, uh, they have a little bit of distance from the, the, the money. But they but certainly 
if you look at what's happened since Citizens United, we've not seen a flood of corporate money coming into super PACs. Now, that money might be coming into some secret other organizations, which we could talk about, but not a lot of corporate money. Some, but not a lot. Mostly the money's coming from very, very wealthy individuals who are giving money to the campaigns. And that's really where we're seeing a big change in the behavior of the very wealthy in trying to influence elections. So one of your key arguments is that a, that a direction forward uh, for, for advocates of campaign finance reform is to shift from a corruption argument to a political equality argument. How would one defend limits on political donations or political expenditures based on this idea of political equality? Right. So back in Buckley, the court said political equality is off the table. I think that was a fundamental mistake. If you think about what the problem of money in politics is today, it's not that we have a lot of politicians taking bribes, at least not at the congressional level. It's more a problem that people with the greatest economic power can take their economic power uh, and translate it into uh, uh, political power. And they increasingly can do that as these limits fall. And I think we need to go back to reconsider first principles. I don't think it is wholly foreign to the First Amendment to say that you could limit money in elections to prevent this kind of wholesale um, uh, power grab by the wealthiest. And in fact, it's consistent with going back to our Declaration of Independence, claims of equality, going back to the 1960s when the Supreme Court in a series of cases like those involving the one person, one vote, talked about people having equal voting power. This is really about making sure that each of us have the uh, ability to have some influence over our government while still ensuring that there's robust political competition and people have means to be able to make their political arguments in elections. And so I say we need to reconsider the interest on the government or on the society side, and we need to rethink how we balance that interest against the First Amendment rights of people who want to spend millions of dollars that most of us don't have to try to influence the outcome of elections and influence public policy. So what might this look in practice? You, you lay out some, some specifics. Um, some of them are sort of seem like they're sort of hard and fast. Some of them you're a little bit more flexible on. But give us some of the outlines of what this might look like. So one of the things I argue is that if we had a, a Supreme Court that was uh, more uh, receptive to considering a new balance with political equality, uh, then what we might do is ha uh, have uh, a system of what I call vouchers plus limits. First, I'd give all voters, say, $100 to, uh, and it's public financing, but it'll, how it gets divvied up would be done through vouchers that would be given to each voter. You'd say you'd have $100. You could give that money to a candidate you like. You can give that money to a political party. You give that money to an interest group, uh, which would then be used for funding um, uh, elections on the federal level. Uh, so there are probably lots of money flowing to the Democratic and Republican parties, lots of money flowing to popular politicians and money flowing to interest groups like the, you know, like a Sierra Club or the National Rifle Association or whatever. And this money would be billions of dollars that would be out there to fund our elections. So lots of speech, lots of uh, money out there for this. For, I would couple that with limits. I would say uh, if you have a lot of money, You'd be capped at spending 25, spending and or contributing $25,000 in any particular election. So, you know, you're a big supporter of uh, Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. You've got to stop at 25000 once you've contributed or spent that much in that election. And across all federal elections over a two-year period, I'd limit you to a half a million dollars. 
Now, for most of us, that's not a limit at all. Most of us don't have a half a million dollars. We don't have $25,000. But for those at the very top, it would be a very different situation than, just to give you some examples, in 2012, billionaire casino mogul Sheldon Adelson and his wife contributed uh, uh, or spent between 98 and $150 million uh, in those elections. In 2014, uh, Tom Steyer, uh, who's a billionaire environmentalist, uh, spent $74 million trying to influence the uh, Senate races. And the Koch brothers' network of about 40 people uh, uh, have already apparently spent uh, and contributed about $400 million. They're on track to spend uh, maybe just under $900 million, which is an astounding amount of money on our elections. That would not be allowed uh, under the system I'm proposing. Now, is this, is this a proposal that, that you see um, uh, having an audience both within liberal and conservative Republican Democrat circles, or or is this a is a proposal that uh, whose political feasibility depends on something like a a fundamental change in the composition of the Supreme Court? Who's out there in in terms of um, uh, backing these kinds of ideas, either on Capitol Hill or or in other circles? Well, I I suppose there there are two answers to the question or, or two uh, audiences for my book. So one audience for my book are the future Supreme Court justices to convince the progressive justices, not only that they should uphold more laws, but that they should uh, uphold more campaign finance laws, but that they should consider carefully reinvigorating this political equality idea and carefully striking this balance, allowing limits on money in politics, uh, so long as you can ensure that there would be robust political speech and uh, uh, competitive elections. Uh, so one audience is a kind of jurisprudential trying to convince uh, the courts that this is the way to go. Uh, and that will come if there are some retirements on the courts in the next, maybe the next uh, uh, presidential election will have a period where there'll be some retirements on the courts, which could shift the balance of power again. Uh, but the other side is political. It's an argument, I think, for progressives to make a case for uh, political change. And I don't expect this would be passed in Congress anytime soon. I actually think, although I'm talking about this on the national level, it would be best to start on the local level and the state level. And on that aspect of things, I'm pretty happy happy to um, the city of Seattle, Washington, has recently been uh, the first state, uh, the first city in the nation to pass a voucher plan. And we're going to be very closely watching that to see how it goes. And I think as we experiment on the state and local level, we can see what works in terms of the right mix to make sure that, again, the wealthy don't dominate our elections, but also that we have robust political competition for office. Now, would introducing this at the federal level require a, a new constitutional amendment, as some people have suggested? Well, the vouchers part would not. The vouchers, voluntary public financing would be uh, perfectly consistent with the First Amendment as it's currently understood. As to the limits portion, one way is a constitutional amendment, but another way to deal with this in the way that I propose is um, changing the Supreme Court. That is, in our polarized times and with the very difficult um, standards that it takes to pass a constitutional amendment, it's much easier to change the Constitution by changing the composition of the Supreme Court than by passing a constitutional amendment. And so I, uh, I actually think that that is a, a, a better way to go uh, in terms of feasibility. I also think that a constitutional amendment raises a different problem. And that's a problem of the uh, drafting of it. Uh, as I've looked at various drafts of proposed constitutional amendments, they tend to have uh, one of two problems. One, they tend to be too 
uh, draconian. So, for example, the group moved to amend has a constitutional amendment that would take away all corporations' uh, rights. That would seem to allow, say, the state of New York to shut down the New York Times or Fox News if it doesn't like it. I don't, I don't like that approach. The alternative approach, the approach that the Democratic senators, the United States senators, when they tried to pass a constitutional amendment um, proposal, uh, they would allow only, quote, reasonable campaign finance regulation. That leaves the issue back in the courts, and we're stuck kind of in the same place we are now, where um, if you have a conservative majority on the court, they're going to vote to find any limitations on money in politics to be unreasonable. Such an interesting book. The, again, the title is Plutocrats United, Campaign Money, the Supreme Court and the Distortion of American Elections, published by Yale University Press. The author is Rick Hassan. Rick, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure.